In today's episode of Rob Conrad Conversations, Dr. Rob Morrison. Science, when it's well applied, is unquestionably the most effective method we have of sorting out what's true and what's not true, and we need to encourage an understanding of that so we're not swamped by all this kind of nonsense that's coming from people who just are sages or gurus or identities, the identity politics. He sparked a flame in millions of kids by sharing his love of science. And there's joy in it. I mean, a child who has actually made something that works, Mm. uh, you can see the pleasure in it. Uh, I, I still feel the pleasure in it. You make something and it works. But we don't do enough of it, I think children to say, well, I'm going to make an aeroplane that flies and, and do it. But there, there is real joy when they do, and, and to share that with them and to encourage that feeling, I think it's a very good thing. Through two decades of hosting The Curiosity Show. Uh, well, I can tell you how I got into The Curiosity Show. It was a complete accident. It was a bungle on my part. For me, it was because I was a scientist and I had television experience so I could communicate it. So with no journalistic experience at all, but being a scientist who could deal with television, I was grabbed by a television station. Mm-hmm. So it was to me a lesson that, that if you get good at your trade and you're able to communicate your trade, then there are all sorts of avenues into the media. I went to New Zealand, it went to Singapore, uh, it went to about 14 countries in Europe, Asia and Australasia. Join the conversation now. Welcome to Rob Conrad Conversations. Conversations with extraordinary people that motivate and inspire. Learn, grow, and impact lives. Subscribe now and hit the bell icon for a new conversation every week. Here comes the sunshine and burns away clouds. Hi and welcome, this is Rob Conner from Switzerland. And if you grew up like myself in the dark ages of technology in the 70s and 80s without YouTube, without Netflix, without the internet, without iPhones and with something like three TV channels only, then A, I'm pretty sure that you had a pretty awesome childhood climbing on rocks and trees, playing with knives and fire three hours away from your home and without a mobile phone and doing all the stuff that kids nowadays are not allowed to do because apparently kids nowadays are much more likely to badly hurt themselves when they just step out of the safety of their home. And B, I'm also sure that you remember the one iconic TV show that sparked the interest in science in millions of kids and not only kids in Australia, the US and over here in Europe, The Curiosity Show. And I remember eating way too much ice cream on more than one occasion to get enough of those little wooden sticks to build whatever the two hosts, Rob and Dean, have built during the show. And I'm really, really happy and really, really honored to have one of my childhood heroes almost on the show, someone that probably taught me more about science than all my school teachers combined, Dr. Rob Morrison. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing very well, thanks, Rob. And it's very, very kind of you to invite me. I have to thank you. So I don't remember you having this Australian accent 20 years back on the German version of the Curiosity Show. <laughs> you picked up recently or? No, no. Well, it, I mean, I don't have, by some standards, a very strong Australian accent, although people can pick it. Um, 
but uh, you know, it's, it's there. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons may be that I grew up in Adelaide, and Adelaide, of all the capital cities in Australia, is the only one that didn't get convicts. Oh. And so okay. we were we were settled by free settlers who came out from England, and my ancestors were among them. And it's said that that gives Adelaide a special kind of slightly more English accent. I'm not sure about that, but that may explain it. Okay. But in fact, um, after we won the Prisionesse Internationale in 1984, um, German television took an interest in us and came out and took our scripts. We, we were just ad-libbing the show, but uh, somebody transcribed everything that we said. And that was taken back to Ravensburger, where they do this very well. They picked German actors with our voices, which is a bit uncanny, and dubbed the whole thing word for word into German, mm -hmm. and then lip-synced it. Yeah. And it's, it's odd, I can't speak German, unfortunately, but you could see this person who was you on the screen in fluent German in your voice. Although you couldn't understand German, you knew what they were saying. It was slightly, slightly otherworldly. Yeah. It went from Germany to, uh, I think, about 14 countries in, in Europe. So. Um, and that was our entree into Europe. We had been on in British television briefly, but nobody seems to remember that. It was uh, oh. the, the Germans who got us there. So, so how many countries is it? 14 countries? Uh, which countries uh, were those? Well, I'm not sure in Europe where it went. It was pirated by some, but it also went to New Zealand. It went to Singapore. Uh, it went to about 14 countries in Europe, Asia, and Australasia. Okay. So it was a fair spread. Okay. Have you ever met the guys who dubbed you? Did you ever talk? Not the guys who dubbed us. We met the uh, the television um, executives who came out and organized it. No, I'd like to have. Oh, okay. I don't know how well we would have communicated. I imagine they speak English. Australians are not very good at having a second language. Europeans often have many, and they're fluent in them. I struggle a bit with French, although I enjoy it. But we're not very good in Australia. We we just speak English and hope everybody else does too. <laughs> well, it's you can get a pretty far with English, I guess, nowadays. Although Ch Chinese Chinese is, is taking over slowly, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's partly our isolation, I think. Is uh, you know you can't easily travel from a, a Australia into a neighbouring country where they speak something different. Yeah. So um, you know it's been a bit of a a pity that we're uh, you know we're not very good bilingually or multilingually because it does open up other cultures in a very interesting way if you are um, and we're a bit closed in that respect I think. That's right. Oh, I guess the technology will help. So I was, um, I've been travel traveling extensively to China um, the past year and mm -hmm. there are a few pieces of amazing software and basically you just talk into it and yeah. pick another language and it, it does translate pretty well so it's not it's not perfect but you can get along you know with a, ta in a, in a cab or uh, can order some food in restaurants um, if they don't speak English and it's pretty amazing I mean yeah. it's like how far the technology has come yeah you're quite right I, I think in a utilitarian way it's quite easy but I mean I, I've learned a heck of a lot about France mm -hmm. by learning to speak French that's true you, you just learn a lot more about the culture They're always, I mean, there are words in French that we don't have in English. Mm -hmm. And when you say, what does that mean? It's like Schadenfreude in, in yeah, German. True. I don't know any English way of explaining that except a rather long convoluted sentence. But it entraps a concept that we all know. Mm -hmm. So once you get that word, you think there's no other word for it. 
Yeah. And the same is true in any language. There are words that don't really have an equivalent elsewhere, but they have a concept. And so the more you speak in other languages, the more you get exposed to that. And I think that's valuable. You don't get that out of, a, out of an app. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so um, you've aired from, I think, 72 um, until 1990? Yeah, that was, yes, when we were in production, yes. And then you reintroduced uh, the Curiosity Show a few years back on YouTube and started the YouTube channel. Yes, it was. Um, we would have done it sooner, except when we when we finished production in 1990, our show was produced. First of all, it was started by Channel Nine, a, a network in Australia, and then production moved to a, a company called Bankshire, mm -hmm. and we worked very happily with them. And in the end, Dean and I had half the rights to Curiosity Show, and Bankshire had the other half. Mm -hmm. But Bankshire went bust and went into liquidation, and so when we We couldn't do anything with the show because we had half rights, but the other half were locked up. Yeah, yeah. And it took many years for the liquidator to sort that out. And in the end, we were allowed to buy the half of the rights that we didn't otherwise have. Mm -hmm. And that was about four years ago. And that's when we had total rights to the program. We thought, what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. And um, by, by then, of course, the Internet had come along. And in many ways for our program, it's actually better because our program was made out of little segments of four minutes, two minutes, and one minute. And whereas 25 minutes, the whole length of the program is too long to put up on YouTube, really. Um, putting up four minute, three minute, two minute, one minute segments is ideal. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our stuff is making and doing. So on television, you, until you got a video recorder, you couldn't really, you know, went past you thought, how did he do that? You couldn't go back. You couldn't play it back, yeah. <laughs> On YouTube, you can just replay it or stop it or do you like, what you like. So it suits our, our sort of program quite well. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Um, if you read the comments below the videos, you see a lot of um, guys and gals like my age, 35, 40 years old, they say, ah, oh, I remember watching it when I was a child and I was so it's so amazing and I'm so happy that I can now replay this and watch all the episodes that I missed back then and, and go through everything. So, so there seems to be a lot of nostalgia around your show. Yes, there is. There's a lot of profanity, too. I mean, you, you wonder why some people... You picture people hovering in little dark alleys just trying to be nasty to people. There are a few of them, too, but you can just dismiss them. Mm -hmm. But there is an, a certain nostalgia for it. And it's interesting. We've got over well over a thousand segments up now, mm -hmm. but all we have is a few years of the show. I mean, the show went for 18 years. Mm -hmm. I think we've got from about... Uh, let me just look at my shelves... About 1981 onwards, but that's all. Ah, okay. Um, because Dean and I eventually got the masters to the show, but the technology kept changing. And so we do have some early programs on, on tapes that nothing will play anymore. You know, the machines are all gone. Okay. But, but so we had, have... so we, we, some of the programs um, were on two-inch masters, and we've had them dubbed over. Mm -hmm. And later on, occasionally, the, the show was going to air with errors that somebody in post-production had put in. Mm -hmm. Odin and I insisted that we got a VHS copy each mm -hmm. so we could monitor it at home and correct anything before we went to air. And for about five years, those VHS copies have been our source, and that's all we've got. So it's a bit tenuous grabbing some of this stuff and putting it onto YouTube. <laughs> Okay. And, but the old tapes, the old mass tapes still exist? So maybe if someone had... Oh, yeah. 
Okay, so so maybe if someone has old machines laying around, then uh, there would still be a way to get access to that. Yes, there some of the oldest ones. No, we can't find anybody who can play it. Although there may be somewhere. Mm -hmm. Now our local library has asked for all our all our work and a lot of our old. When we were filming the the segments for people who haven't seen it, um, I mean television started with sort of talking head. It was just somebody on television talking. Then you started to put a few inserts in. Um, and early in the program, we had those. We'd send a camera operator out. I say cameraman because they were all men in our day. Yeah. You know, not now, but I tend to say cameraman because that's all we had. You'd send them off to get little snippets. And then when you're doing your segment, you drop these things in. So we had a huge collection of, of film snippets, mm -hmm. you know, one minute, two minutes, three minutes that had been used which are sort of archivally interesting because they show Adelaide 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Buildings have gone and streets have changed and fashions are, are different. So those are all now acquired by our, our public library mm -hmm. and they're very keen to get all our programs. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, a friend of mine who runs a theatre has them stored up in, in his sort of strong room. So I think he'd be quite pleased to get them out. <laughs> and we've got all the VHS things in our houses which need to go somewhere. So... I think eventually they'll go to the unfortunate library who will have to have this huge room to put them in. Okay. But they've got a number of dubbing, bits of dubbing equipment that can probably get some of the earlier stuff. But um, some of it's just weird boxes of tape that I don't think anything will play anymore. No. <laughs> the collector's items. <laughs> well, that, that, that's, that's going to become a problem with a lot of things, I guess. If you look at CDs, yeah. CDs even just a few years ago, I mean, I don't even have a CD or DVD players in my computers anymore, on my laptop, and just no mm. for it anymore. So that's going to be a big issue with a lot of what we have right now. And even if it's just stored digitally, then good luck getting to that once it's gone. So. Yeah, well, well, you're right. I mean, Dean and I, um, I suppose about four years ago, well, we're, actually, when the show was running, excuse me, <clears throat> when the show was running, we produced a couple of videotapes, VHS tapes of... Uh, Things to, 20 things to make and do and tricks and puzzles. Now, of course, when they, when we went back on, on YouTube, we thought, well, let's re-release that. They came out as DVDs. So we're now putting out, we just put out the third of our DVDs, but I think that's the last time we'll do a DVD. We'll probably now have to put them out on US, uh, on, on memory sticks, USB just, sticks. Just even stream them, like digital digital content. To yeah, right. Well, we're looking at doing that with the, the, the current one. So yeah. the technology does change very fast. And in marketing, of course, you've got to keep up with that as well. That's true. Yeah. It, I mean, it's odd, Rob. Um, when I was doing the show, I thought, well, television's ephemeral, but books are forever. So I wrote a lot of books. I've written about 43. Now books are ephemeral. And YouTube is forever. Yeah. The whole thing is completely changed. We'll see about that. It's really forever. <laughs> so, um, what, what happened after the show stopped um, in 1990? What did you guys do after that? Well, Dean uh, had his own television production company, and he kept going with some of that. Um, and he, we still worked together a bit. We'd be taken up to do. For example, there was a program, a lovely program called The Inventors in Australia. It was run by the ABC, which is our public broadcaster. And Dean and I were invited to come along and 
do a bit of science behind some of the inventions, and that was good. And we got invited onto talk shows, and we periodically crop up as this sort of pair from the past, and we do a few things. And we do shows together in public still. But he went more into doing science, school, science shows in schools, and he still does. Um, I was taken up by Channel 10 to be their science and environment and technology specialist. And it was a great lesson to me because a lot of a lot of children come to us and you know young people say, "How do I get into television?" Uh, well, I can tell you how I got into the Curiosity Show. It was a complete accident. It was a bungle on my part. I'll tell you that later. But you know they all think the way into television is through acting, mm-hmm. and it's probably the last way I would choose because you've got to be. I mean, acting is a pretty desperate profession in terms of long-term employment, you've got a pretty exceptional to be taken up for a, a television series. It's got to be produced where you live, and now in Australia, instead of being produced in every capital city, everything's migrated to Sydney and Melbourne. You know, there's very little that goes on in Adelaide anymore. That was the hub of children's production. So I think that's a very dubious route to try to get into television on if you want to do that. For me, it was because I was a scientist and I had television experience so I could communicate it. So with no journalistic experience at all, but being a scientist who could deal with television, I was grabbed by a television station. Mm-hmm. So it was to me a lesson that, that if you get good at your trade and you're able to communicate your trade, then there are all sorts of avenues into the media that are not available to an actor. So that was good. So for 10 years I did that, and that was a wonderful job. I really enjoyed that. And then as that finished, um, again, the public broadcaster, which is where I started my television work, uh, what, 50 years ago in in education, uh, took me on to do um, science segments in, I forget what they were called, I had my own spot, but they were in a program called Nexus. Mm-hmm. And we had then the Asia-Pacific service, so Australia would radiate these programs out into the Asia-Pacific region, I think about 40, 50 countries, and I had the science spot in that. And I uh, <clears throat> partly presented, I partly produced, I partly edited, and I discovered the joys of being behind the camera mm-hmm. rather than in front of it, because editing to me is a really interesting, really interesting part of video production. Mm-hmm. And uh, I probably finished my television career in almost the same room as I started it, on the third floor of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation building in Adelaide, when that series finished. (laughs) Okay. And then, so, um, you just started doing the show, basically, without having any intention to actually do it, and then you got hired the next day or something, if I remember correctly. Well, it was, a, it was a very odd experience. I mean, it, it's again, when, when kids say, how do I get into television? I can't really give them this route. But I had been working for the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, called the ABC. It's our version of the BBC. And we had a science programs there. Or I had a science segment in children's programs for educational, to go to schools. And the pace of the public broadcaster, I'm sure it's different now, but it was pretty leisurely. You know, you'd, you'd come in and you'd talk through your segment and 
somebody would reset some lights and you'd talk through it again and you'd have a cup of tea and then you'd discuss how you might do it differently and have a cup of tea and then you might have a, a rehearsal and a cup of tea and then you'd break for lunch and come back and have a, a run through and set the lights again and a cup of tea and eventually you'd do it and you didn't like it and you'd redo it and have a cup of tea and finish for the day. So I knew all about this television stuff and at that stage I was hand rearing a little possum. Our possums are not like the South American opossum which is a rather sharp nosed little thing. Ours are, are really beautiful, really gorgeous animals and, and sometimes the mother dies or loses the baby and, and if you don't hand rear it it will die. And my wife and I were hand rearing some of these and I had a little one about, about you know, the cutest stage you can reach. And I had a, I used to keep it in a holster. I made a holster out of a sock, a, a, a ring of wire like that, and you put a sock through it and double it over and hang it over your shoulder from a ribbon. And so this, this, this possum would nestle in under my jacket there. And I would take it out and feed it and show my students. They called it the fastest possum in the South because this holster would allow you a... But uh, I was asked by a friend of mine who was on Channel 9, to bring this possum in to show children on the program that she was producing. So I went in there with the possum and we sat down and I took it out and I did what I thought was the first talk through and I produced the possum and pointed a few things out and fortunately didn't swear or say anything silly and you know this went on for a while she said thanks and got up and left and I thought well, she's going to put up you know fix up her makeup to do the take. So I sat there and she came out said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm waiting to do the take. She said, we just did. I've got to get on. Goodbye. So I snuck out of there feeling like a fool carrying my possum away and uh, thinking, you know, I really made an idiot of myself. And I got a phone call the next day. And it was the producer of this new program that the government had said they had to make, which is what Curiosity Show grew out of. And he said, um, did you know we're starting a new program? I had no idea. I said, no. He said, did you know we're looking for presenters? I said, no. And he said, well, we couldn't help noticing how relaxed you were on camera yesterday. Yeah. And at least I had the wit not to blurt out, well, I didn't know I was being filmed. <laughs> <laughs> so I said eerily, oh, well, I do some work for Channel 2. And I was in. And that was how I got taken on. Okay. I wasn't nearly as relaxed when we started doing the show, but by then I was tired. So uh, that was how I got in, by accident through a blunder and, and covering up. <laughs> and how did Dean get in? Uh, well, he was already doing some segments on an earlier show called Channel Niners. I have to explain a bit. Um, Curiosity Show and other shows like it in 1970 started because until then... Uh, the commercial channels really only had, for the most part, schools for uh, shows for preschoolers. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have much for older children at all. Channel 9 in Adelaide did. It just out of its own thinking, really, it had a program called the Channel Niners. Mm -hmm. And that was for slightly older children. But in 72, the government said to all commercial channels, you will now start making programs for children of school-going age They have to be shown in out-of-school hours. You will make so many hours per week. And unless you get the magic accreditation, it was called the C mm -hmm. programs, then you will not be allowed to go to air. Wow. Which, of course, 
frightened the tribes out of all of them. And suddenly they started thinking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, Channel 9 was ahead of the game because it had some experience in this. Mm-hmm. So they said, let's convert existing programs. Unfortunately for us, the very early days of uh, of, Ch- of a curiosity show, there was an, a sort of program for preschoolers called Humphrey B. Bear, and it had this gigantic bear suit that a bloke was in. This bear couldn't talk. It could just point and everything. It was designed for three for three-year-olds, and we were suddenly put into this program to talk to 10-year-olds about science. It was very uneasy. And um, one of the happy things, I've, I went overseas to Europe for a year in 72 and 73, but I got rid of the bear just before we left. And Curiosity Show evolved from that. Mm-hmm. So um, I can't remember how I started this long tale, but uh, um, uh, yes, Dean was Dean was doing segments on Channel Niners, so they already knew about him. But when I was taken on, he was overseas. Mm-hmm. So when he got back, we were both in there, and, and we both were the only ones to stay from the start to finish. Mm-hmm. And in the end, but, so we were the only ones for many years when the program changed to the format that fortunately people remember. But I did. I think I'm the only person to get Humphrey B. Bear to talk on television. It's not a very nice story, but I'll tell you if you like. <laughs> yes, these are these. Well, it was... Um, Back in the days when we started, it was a terrible program. It was one hour long Mm -hmm. with a magazine program, you know, bits and pieces of everything. So, um, I mean, that doesn't really work very well for adults because they're not interested in everything. Mm -hmm. For children, it's much worse. They're not interested in everything. And the age difference means that three-year-olds and ten-year-olds are interested in quite different things. But they're worth going to all of them. So I was trying to do science for 10-year-olds, and there was always this sort of idiotic bear behind me who couldn't talk, was desperate about losing his three-year-olds, yeah. and would get behind us and upstage us and sort of do a lot of this, and it was very distracting. And uh, we were offered an outside broadcast unit one day, um, we, you know, so the van that goes off. We didn't get it very often because it was expensive, but there'd been a cancellation. And I said, well, it can come out to my university after hours. I'll dress up a laboratory with machines that look good, and uh, I'll do a segment there. It'll be a nice change. So I did. This van arrived at about 8 o'clock in the morning. I looked out of my window to my horror, saw this huge van and the bloke beginning to work with the electricity, and the lights all went out in the in the in uh, my wing, and everyone was complaining, and I didn't let on. It was me. But eventually, uh, everything was right. And um, that, sure enough, we started. The bloke came with his Humphrey suit and got into it. And I had a Van de Graaff generator. And these are these things you have in science museums where they'll generate 100,000 volts. That's right. And this had been going for some time and a nice warm night. And there was Humphrey behind me doing all the pointing and getting closer to this thing. And I thought, well, we'll just see where this goes. You don't want to point too closely at a Van der Graaff generator. It's <laughs> like a rifle shot. And, a, and an arc of blue fire about a metre long licked into the outstretched finger of this bear. And he did a quick 360 pirouette. And there was just one emphatic word that emerged from this, muffled from this suit. And it was not a very appropriate word at all. But he quietened out after that. It did the job. I think I'm the only one to get him to talk on television. 
<laughs> it's something. Uh, that's a funny story. Yeah. So um, you and Dean have been working together for quite a while, and uh, mm. since often we, we knew each other before. We were both lecturers in different um, parts of the university system, mm -hmm. but we got together then, and we've been friends since. Yeah, yeah. So often with these iconic duos, um, there are the few. You know, artists or there's now the, the magicians, Penn and Teller, I don't know if you're aware of them, for example. Um, they work together really closely, but often these people are in their private lives are not that close. So how is it with you and Dean? Are you friends? Oh, sure. uh, yeah, we, we are friends. We don't see a lot of each other. Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, we tend to see more of each other interstate. Because when people ask us to go and do programs in Sydney or Melbourne, we go together and we're in the same hotel and we eat together and It's good, but he lives quite a long way away from me. So, I mean, I, I've I've just stood down as the chair of uh, our equivalent of a of a science and technology centre. We had one in Adelaide, it closed, and three of us bought the assets and formed a mobile. I mean, it's a bit like um, everyone's got them around the, around the world, but ours is mobile because we couldn't afford the centre. And I was the chair of that for 12 years, and I got Dean to come on the board. So we see each other there. Mm -hmm. We do shows together at science fairs. Um, we get asked to do television appearances. We run the channel together. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a good working relationship. We don't see as much of each other socially as we, we probably should, but, you know, travel and all of that. Uh, no, we've, we've always been, been friends. The... Uh, Sometimes those can be tussles you have on a program where, um, and we could have had them, I'm sure, if we'd said, for example, you might have picked a theme of water, mm -hmm. and Dean would go away and I would go, if we'd come back with the same segments, I'm sure somebody would have had to give way. But it seemed to evolve that Dean would go away and think about segments in physical science, chemistry, physics, geology, which he'd studied, um, Uh, technology, and I would I would tend to go away and think of segments in music, uh, zoology, botany, um, art, and so we tend to think in different arenas about the same theme. So when we came together, we'd covered a fair spectrum, mm -hmm. but we haven't overlapped, and we never decided to do that. It just sort of evolved. And so when we went on location, we'd say, we'd be thinking, you know, what are we going to cover here? And if we went to New Zealand, for example, Dean would say, well, I like to do glaciers. Mm -hmm. I'd say, well, I like to do kiwis. So we, we kind of pushed into our own areas and brought them together, and that helped, rather than being a source of discord. Okay. So that was, that was a good way of doing it, too. So you were in charge of the content yourself, so there was no producer who, de who decided on what's going to be next or... Um, largely, what usually happened would be, I mean, we didn't have any time to meet apart from after the show. Mm -hmm. So you finished recording in, at 12 o'clock at night, then you'd sit down and have a production meeting. Mm -hmm. So often what would happen would be, um, let's plan the next six shows. Mm -hmm. And you can think of it a bit like a, like a target, okay? You might say, well, here's a theme of water. Mm -hmm. Well, if you think the most obvious things that come to your mind on a theme of water are probably going to be the least interesting. Everyone thinks of them. But you might think water. Okay, outer, outer segment, what, what can we think of? Ice, steam, go out a bit more. Steam, steam power, engines. Mm -hmm. Ice, um, 
glaciation and continents, continental drift. So you let your, it's like an onion, you try and let your thinking go out into outer spheres. So you might come up with, say, six themes. It might be water, fire, air, earth, um, hot, cold, really, things like that. Then you go away and think, well, what can I do with that? And you move off, and I might come back with a, make a paddle steamer out of a mousetrap, and then you might come back with how glaciation drops rocks all over the countryside that don't look as if they belong there. Mm -hmm. So the theme had been decided together, but as individuals we'd work out our segment and do the props and bring them in and just, just do it in the studio. And how, how much um, time did it take to produce one episode or one show? We would come in, we would have dinner together, um, and then I think we would probably start recording at about seven And we had to finish by 12 or everyone went on to overtime and we got into trouble. So I suppose to do a half hour, we would do it in about perhaps four hours. Okay, and in terms of preparation time for that? Uh, not on the night. Dean and I would do all that on the weekend. Oh, you'd, you'd, you'd arrive with a, a cardboard carton of rubbish, uh -huh. which were your coughs and I wish I'd brought some in. I, I've got some in my room, but there'd be... For example, in the mousetrap racer was a favorite of mine. It's on, it's online, but it's how you make a racing car out of a mousetrap. Mm -hmm. And you, you'd put screw eyes underneath this thing and you put pencils for axles and little wheels. And then you have a, um, you know, you have a, a thread that goes from the, the bar of the mousetrap wrapped around the axle. So when you fire it, the mousetrap comes forward like that, pulls on the thread, off it goes across the roof. So you'd have a finished one, you'd have one to be started with, you'd have all your bits and pieces, and you'd have to do the whole thing in four minutes. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't really be putting in screw eyes for too long. So you'd probably have about two or three or four of these in different stages. Mm -hmm. So you'd get the mousetrap and you'd say, you put the screw eyes here and the pencil through, here's one that I've done earlier. And, and so you'd kind of leap from stage to stage until you got the one that was finished and you'd show it working. We always showed what we had made working, A, so children would know they would if they did it right, and B, to show them the limits of what it would do. Because children who think you can make a mousetrap racer will go roaring you know, down the corridor, mm -hmm. you know, it hasn't got enough full. So we would show what we had done and they had an idea of what they could get to work if they did it right. Okay. So you'd have all these different stages and you whip through them and, and you can see that online. Here's one I did earlier. Yeah, yeah. A, we, are, uh, we are told we are responsible for. <laughs> okay. So it was, it was a quite efficient operation then? If, if it was... Oh yeah, it had to be. It had to be. Mm. I mean, we, children's programmers didn't get a lot of money. Mm. We had a pretty fair budget, I think, for the time. Mm. But it was certainly not the equivalent of say, news or current affairs. Okay. And when I went to Channel 10, I was amazed. If I wanted the helicopter, I'd sort of snap my fingers and I had a helicopter to go and do a, a three-minute segment for news. You know, and that would take as long as doing a 25-minute show mm -hmm. for children. But, okay. And, and why was it filmed in the evenings? Yes, we did it all in the, in the evenings. Um, if, if you needed something which had to be shot in the daytime, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, either 
um, you would send a, a camera. I keep saying cameraman. That's all we had. A cameraman out to film it, and they they would have this insert that you could you could use. Um, at one stage, because we're working in in Sydney in these days, I got myself a little Bolex 16 mil camera, mm-hmm. and I would then go out and shoot footage myself for that, and that would be processed by the newsroom, which was always working with Sydney then, mm-hmm. hundred feet of film, they last about three minutes. So I would shoot my own inserts and bring those in and drop them into what was called telecine there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we'd also, as the show got popular, go on location once a year. And that would take us to places that were taking the show. Mm-hmm. So when New Zealand took the show, we'd go there for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Or we'd go to Singapore for two weeks or somewhere like, or Central Australia for two weeks. And in that two weeks, we worked like slaves. Dean and I would get enough material shot to be able to drop in at least one segment each into each of the 39 programs coming up in the following year. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of work. I mean, you, you, as you're driving around, you'd be looking, say, I can do a segment there. That's worth a one minute. I want to do a four minute on this. And you just grab stuff and, and, and capture it. So that was really efficient working, yeah. and uh, you look at film crews; they can't believe it. I mean, the 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 cost. We were told the cost of dubbing one of our shows into German in Ravensburger cost more than the cost of our making that program in Australia. Okay, so you were really efficient with money. <laughs> yeah, we were, but we we liked working like that, mm. and I mean, there was no time to write a script and learn it. You had lived, mm-hmm. but that had a sort of natural live quality to it. You know, you f- you find slip-ups in what we say all the time in our segments. He didn't take them out. He just he just did it. So it had a kind of casual one-to-one relationship with the audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're always with those shows, even if a hundred watch. And we were we were used in a lot of schools as a science lesson, which was wrong, but we were. But you know, you don't talk to a crowd on television. You talk to one person. And a hundred people, they're all watching as one person. So you try and get that head and shoulders closeness mm-hmm. feeling and ad-libbing added to that. So it, it became a strength rather than a liability. We were happy with that. Okay. okay. And so why did the show stop eventually in 1990? That's a sad story, really. We, um, The original children's program committee that gave this magic seed was headed by a wonderful woman called Dr. Patricia Edgar, who really did a huge amount for children's television in Australia. But eventually she left, she stood down, and the committee passed into the hands of zealots, and particularly, um, uh, I have to be careful how I put it, but it was in fact uh, the, uh, the crucial point. Some uh, extremely strong feminist thinkers Mm-hmm. who decided that you couldn't have a program with only two men in it. Mm-hmm. And they refused, just as we were really taking off in Europe, yeah. they refused to give us the C. They said it was production values. Mm-hmm. They would never put it in writing, but they would tell us that we had, you know, we couldn't have two men. So we looked at it, we tried to get a female presenter, but by then the kind of working relationship made it hard to make it a program with three. We did try, but also every presenter we tried would come along with ideas and they'd all been done. 
that we'd have to say, well, I'm sorry we did that. And, you know, we'd, we'd done such a lot over the years that it was very hard to find a new angle to intrude without changing the show enormously. And while we were still struggling with this, Ravensburger said, I'm sorry, we don't want any changes in the program at all. That's what we're buying. That's what we like. So we were sort of caught, whatever we did. And rather than really change the program in a way that we felt would not have worked, Dean and I decided that we would discontinue it. So it stopped then. Okay. And we were, we were very sad. We'd like to have gone on. Just producing it for the European market would it not have been an option? Uh, let's rewind a few years and, and test that. Um, I think it would have been—I think it would have been hard because they would have had. I—I I don't know how it would have worked, but it didn't come up. So, and this this wretched committee destroyed not only our show, but I think three or four other major children's programs, uh, and they all went off air one by one. And then the minister said, this is no good, this, this committee is hopeless, and got rid of the committee. Yep. But by then, these children's programs had gone, and they never come back. It was really the end of the major, the major period of children's programs. The golden age, golden age of children's programs, in a way. Yeah. yeah, but it was, in Australia, really, the 70s and the 80s are regarded as the golden age of television. All the new things were happening, the new technologies were coming, color came, chroma key. Mm -hmm. um, huge changes and we were just very lucky we hit those two decades almost exactly yeah. so we had the best of it yeah. were you ever afraid of running out of ideas? yes um, yes always you kept thinking what on earth will I do next week which is one of the reasons we'd say well let's have a theme of because it forced you to think of new stuff you'd, you'd look everywhere I've got a shed full of books of you know, interesting things to make and do. If I had one or two things, you'd buy it. Uh, so, you know, we copied. Um, we invented quite a bit. Uh, you're, always, you're always doing that. Occasionally we would recycle. You know, after about five years, you might do the segment again. Mm -hmm. um, yes, it was always, a, it was always a, an issue. Okay, because I remember there was a show on German television um, called the... Knopfhoff show, which is like a play with words from know-how and then like the way you would pronounce it in German. So it's, it's what's called Knopfhoff, which is the like in the Germanized version of know-how. And it was in a way somewhat similar. It was more of a like studio environment. And there were, there was an, um, also scientists, uh, then they would do sort of like live experiments. And um, I also watched the show a lot and it eventually they had to stop because they, they, they ran out of ideas. They said, okay, there's only so many things we can do in the studio and, and they just didn't know what to do anymore. So it stopped. It was a shame. It was, a, I think, a few years after yours. Maybe they even borrowed some ideas from you. It did happen. Uh, Wikipedia has got a segment on us and it talks about there was a program in America called 321 Contact because they were interested in the program. <clears throat> but they have a very different ethos there, or they did then. I was sent there to look at children's programs. They could not believe you had blokes talking to children, showing them how to do stuff, because their children's programs all featured children. Yep. And to me, it was highly artificial. You, I mean, over there, because of the politics, you had to have male and female and Hispanic and Asian and for okay. black and you had to put all these children together and think, how do we 
do something. Mm-hmm. Some of the best of them were all right, but they were pretty contrived. One was a school where these this particular bunch mm-hmm. had the had the job of creating a school newspaper, so that got them out and about. I think the best I saw was in Boston. It was a lovely program called uh, Changing Places. They had three child presenters who didn't pretend to be authorities. Their job was to go out and interview three people in each episode of just what their jobs were. So one one went out and interviewed a clam fisherman about how they did their job. I went out on the boat and did all that. Somebody else interviewed the person who did Spider-Man comics. Mm-hmm. So that was a lovely way of using children as a medium. But for the most part, they had the children spouting lines and stuff that they'd learned. And children see through that. I mean, they can pick authority on television. They know a phony. And uh, they knew that these children had been given lines by somebody else. So they weren't always wildly popular. But the Americans couldn't believe that we had this program. They called this instructional television. Mm -hmm. Um, So they wouldn't have had a bar of it. But they did like some of the ideas. And they looked at it for a program that eventually became 321 Contact. Mm -hmm. We are told that the producer of uh, um, Mythbusters was influenced because he was Australian and, and being talked to him on a plane when they're traveling somewhere together. So it did have some influences, but I, I think that's not to boast because I think anything on television in that era was special. It was just the time of the thing. I mean, I know I used to regard anything on television as special. I didn't see myself as special for being on it, mm. but I would watch avidly with everybody else these programs that came up because they were special. Television was new. So I think anything there, probably, if it lasted, had some influence on something else. Yeah. Now, of course, it's hard to find Mythbuster the ideas. Sorry? Did you ever get to meet the Mythbuster guys? Or? No. No. No, I think they came after us. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so, no. would you think uh, something like Curiosity Show would work today? If you, I mean, you, you had one episode done um, a few years back, um, but would you think in, in these times where um, the way we have, or the way we consume media has changed so dramatically, you know, switching from com- TV to computer, would, would it still work today? Or are those I don't think so. There is one program going in Australia called Scope, which seems to do all right. But I don't, you see, I mean, if you think about the C program, the classification we had, it was for children to watch after school mm-hmm. and sort of before dinner. Mm-hmm. Now, in those days, children were told when they would watch. Yep. Um, I mean, adult programs started after a certain time, mm-hmm. and it was assumed by then children would be in bed or doing homework. Mm-hmm. Now they'll watch anything, anytime. They can dial it up and watch it. You know, technology allows them to watch when it's not being broadcast. So that element has has gone. There's no no longer the assumption that children will, you know, that's all that that's all they can get access to those hours of that weekday. They just get anything they like. I mean, the internet's changed it too. It's changed it for us. We, you know, we can work on the internet now in a way that wasn't available to us then. So I don't think it would work. And also, when you look at the internet, there's some pretty good stuff of the kind that we used to do, which people are now doing. So there's a huge amount of competition that you would have to go into. And also, the money has dropped out of television. 
he used to be in Australia regarded as a license to print money. But as the internet came along, you've seen it with the papers too, advertiser has migrated online. Of course. So they're no longer the advertisers in the papers or on television to pay for all this stuff. And it's really sad, these studios, beautiful big studios we used to work in that were full of sets and, you know, you'd finish production on one, you'd wheel out the set, another one would come in, off you'd go again. They then were empty, then they were used for storage. Now I think they've all gone. They've been, the buildings have been broken down and turned into something else. So there's just not the money anymore. And if you look at what's on television here in Australia, it's quiz shows, it's reality programs. I look at the top 20 programs. I don't watch any of them. They're not stuff that interests me. It's, it's wallpaper. It's, I think we haven't even used our TV sets in the past two or three years, despite watching the occasional Netflix episode. But really, watching TV, just we, my family just doesn't do it anymore. I mean, the kids... I mean, I have three, uh, three small daughters. They're two, four, and seven-year-old. But they, all, they each have their, their own like, s smartphones or tablets where they can consume their content, whatever they want. And even a two-year-old can some magically find the shows that she would like to see. It's, it's always amazing how she can you know, scroll through YouTube and find you know, the little videos with other kids playing, and she just seems to be attracted by that. Um, but yeah, watching, watching TV is just not something we do anymore. And, and I'm amazed yeah. That's it. And so, you know, how do you mount the, the money to put on a program of this kind when, you know, you, you're fighting all those things? I, I know what you mean. We've got a five-year-old granddaughter mm -hmm. and their house, my, my son's house, has more up-to-date technology than mine. I mean, I sit in my study here with a computer. Mm -hmm. By the time I finished for the day, I don't want to watch anything more on the computer. Yeah. I want to go into my comfortable chair. So I still watch television. But I'm 76. I'm of that era. <laughs> um, but when she comes to stay with us, she says, I would like to watch so-and-so when we do the watching. We don't do a lot of it. I say, well, sorry, we don't. That's not on now. Mm -hmm. It looks at me in mystification. But, you know, you can do it because they do it at home. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, it's just a different game. Yeah. You think in a way but, um, these, these devices or the way we consume has ruined, especially kids, because they... In the past, you had the program that was on, as you said, and you kind of, your parents said, okay, that's, that's a good program you can watch, and they pre-filtered it for you, and nowadays they just consume whatever they want, and that's not necessarily the, the highest production value or really um, of high educational value even. I think it's a very good question, and I, I, I ponder it a lot, and all I can offer is sort of, um, you know, personal views. I, th I think there's huge damage. I think not only is there such a lot of really nasty stuff that um, children have free access to, um, but there are an awful lot of nasty people too. I mean, you, if you look at the comments on our program, um, I mean, fine, if you don't like it, you don't like it. And some people say this is pretty weak or this could be done better. That's all fine. That's criticism. It's all, it's all people, it looks like made in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean... But some people will just go online. It's not just to us, it's to anything, just to be profane and unpleasant. So children are exposed to, I mean, one of the real worries for me with this little girl that's coming along uh, under my care is social media. And social media is tremendously addictive for teenagers, but tremendously destructive in terms of the 
the, the, the unpleasant people who can get onto it and really make your life a misery. So I think there are real problems in it. For me, one of the great worries is that, you know, children now can use these, they play games to such an extent that they're living very often a kind of vicarious life. They'll watch somebody making a piece of jewelry and find it interesting. Whereas we said, this is how you do it, go out and make the jewelry, and they would. So I know the power and what it gives to you in life to be able to use your hands. I'm not the world's greatest, but I can make things, I can do things, I can fix things. I've got the confidence to go out and try. Whereas if that's all you've done, and somebody says, oh, this is broken, can we fix it? No, you throw it out and get a new one. You have no confidence at all in being able to make or do. And if you, if you want to, kids have no sense of materials. You know, they'll, they'll make an aeroplane propeller out of foil that's too weak, they'll bend it more than they should, or they'll grab a bit of wire that they can't possibly bend in their fingers because they don't immediately think that's the grade of wire I want. You know, it's trivial, but they don't have it in the fingers anymore because they're just not making things or doing things. That's, to me, a huge loss. And if we can, with these segments online, get more people making and doing stuff, I'd be very happy with that. But it's so seductive to sit there and be entertained that, you know, they're not going outside, as you said in your introduction, playing in rocks and fields and climbing trees or making things. They're sitting with a, an iPad or something just looking. That worries me. Just, just consuming stuff. That's right. So what do you think, uh, as a parent, what can you do to encourage children to, do, to build things and to go out and, and to you know, get away from this consumption mode into the production mode or productive mode? I think... Again, it's just a personal view, but I think um, starting early, making and doing things with children, which are pleasant because they're social interaction. So, you know, they, they've come surrounded with the idea of pleasantness, not um, anxiety, and keeping going. I mean, our little five-year-old is only allowed a certain amount of watching, but we do a lot of making and doing with her, and that's one of her joys now. She'll grab a crayon and off she'll go, or she'll suddenly decide she wants to have a, a, the other day, she needed a pirate hat and a bit of cardboard, okay, we'll make a pirate hat, which we did, and that, that served that 10 minutes, and off she was doing something else. So for her, it's a genuine part of, it's, it's on the spectrum of things that you do are enjoyable. It's not sort of, you never do any of that, and you do all of this. But that will only come if you do it with them. And if they can see that you enjoy doing it or they want you to make or fix something, and you can. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, my five-year-old knows that grandfathers can do anything. <laughs> so when something breaks, she said, Granddad, please fix this. Fix so I have to find a way. But, you know, I want, I want her to have that feeling that you can do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at what's thrown out for rubbish collection beside the road and I have, I'm hard put not to put it all in my car and bring it back and just glue it together. You know, it's, it's terrible. So I think starting early, fortunately, certainly in Australia, and I'm sure you have it too, you have, um, uh, for us, it's called uh, nature play. It's, it's actually movements that get children out and get playgrounds built 
that are no longer the ultra-safe, boring places that you might be sued for if something goes wrong. So there is a movement back into that, and uh, and that's good. You know, all of that's good. Yeah, it's, uh, You mentioned confidence. I think that's one very important point that we also discussed uh, when we had our preparation call, building confidence in children that they mm. can do things, mm. even if it takes longer. Yeah. Because what you do if you just consume stuff... Um, It's easier. I mean, it's 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 the quick quick reward. You just watch something and then it's yeah. done. And if you try to build something yourself, then a you might fail, and b it might take you not two minutes but twenty minutes or two hours to do. And and you need to build up the the uh, the confidence and and also well the stamina in a way to to keep on doing yeah. it for a while. And there's joy in it. I mean, a child who has actually made something that works. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can see the pleasure in it. Uh, I, I still feel the pleasure in it. You make something and it works. Now, that may be it. You quickly tire of it because done. Mm -hmm. But to make something that works is a joy. And uh, I mean, we do it with children. What should we make daddy for his birthday? You know, And then there might be some crude little cardboard tubes stuck together. You put your pencils in, but it does the job and desks are littered with these things. But we don't do enough of it, I think, for children to say, well, I'm going to make an aeroplane that flies and, and do it. But there, there is real joy when they do. And, and to share that with them and to encourage that feeling, I think, is a very good thing. Um, what do you think about the, you mentioned safety, safety aspects of some things? Because nowadays, my feeling is that you know, if you want to play with mousetraps and you give a 10-year-old a mousetrap, then as soon, you know, there's the risk that they might, you know, Crush the fingers, and then there's two parents complaining now. This is dangerous, and no, you can't do that. And so, at the end of the day, to me, it feels like all children can play nowadays. Uh, play with our like cotton balls, and I don't know, uh, mm. <laughs> glue that's dissolved in water because anything else is too dangerous. <laughs> it, it's tricky, and some of the segments we did, I don't think we would be allowed to do today. We had them. Uh, We'd light candles. One of my segments on how to make a copper ring. You light the candle and you put some solder and you can, you know, you can solder a bit of copper with, with a candle flame. It's odd, but you can. The comments you get, oh, I'm using a candle. Oh, I hope that solder has not got any lead. Oh, you know. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't think many children have broken a finger in a mousetrap. But if you got your finger caught once, you'd be very... Very careful of mousetraps afterwards, yeah. and that's no bad thing. Of course, you wouldn't you wouldn't encourage them to do things which are really dangerous. And we quite often said, "Get a parent to help you here." But you, you know, we use safety knives. Um, you have to. It, it's often safer than trying to do something odd with a pair of scissors. Mm -hmm. you, you've got to do a certain amount of that. And of course, a sensible parent will do it under direction and with help, but. There was a time here when you couldn't get young children doing electronics because it involved a soldering iron. They might get burnt. Well, they might, but then they would learn to handle a solder iron, soldering iron, so they didn't. They're not going to get badly burnt. They might just get, you know, and they might touch it and learn not to do it again. Yeah. You know, if you're climbing a tree, you might fall out, yes. Um, but if you don't climb a tree, you're going to have losses of another kind. So there has to be a certain amount of exposure to living if you're a child or else you're a kind of cocooned thing that will have no confidence at all in 
your own kitchen, your own workroom, your own anything. Somewhere along the line, you have to learn to handle danger. Well, where do you think this is coming from? Because it's something um, a lot of people are pointing out um, that nowadays you have uh, also at universities these movements that try to protect the students from everything no. from bad exposure to you know criticism and and you know you have I don't know safe rooms and uh, I don't know how they are called and I think it's it's absolute madness because the way you grow and the way you you protect yourself from danger is by by going through maybe negative experiences and then learn from it and if you shield people off completely from anything then then where, where are we going to end so where do you think this is coming from uh look i first of all i think you're absolutely right we've got that in our australian universities too it maddens me i mean i've been in universities for 30 years and i'm a, a professor a sort of emeritus professor but I review what's happening in a lot of Australian universities with considerable dismay. Um, on a number of on a number of fronts, there's that one. And if universities stand for anything, it ought to be, provided you're not encouraging harm or defaming somebody, the place where everybody says what they want to say and you argue the case out. But they are amongst the first institutions to say, well, we won't let you say that. Well, party is fear. I mean, we've had here um, people have come in to say, I think, really obnoxious. Uh, I'll go back a bit. We're, we're having a struggle in this country about refugees. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a lot of boat people coming in and, um, you know, genuine refugees, some just looking for a better life, the whole mix. Mm -hmm. But there was a flood of them. And the, because we are an island, the, the government eventually found it quite easy to say, right, we're going to stop the boats. It became a, a cry. And they've been pretty effective in stopping that flood of people. Mm -hmm. What they have done with those who have arrived is to maroon them on some tropical island. It's, it's Nauru, and no fault of the Nauruans, but, you know, some of them are, are, are really in dire shape, particularly the children. And I think what we've done to them and not resolved their plight is appalling. Mm -hmm. But that's another matter. But it has led in this country to real anxiety about the number of people coming in. Our cities are already overcrowded. There are some groups who won't assimilate, so we're getting get ghettos. So there's a kind of angst that's built up about it. Now, we have somebody coming in, and we get a lot of right-wing people now who are saying, you know, send them all back home, that sort of stuff. And this was one of these speakers. Now, uh, I wouldn't have gone to the lecture, because I know that sort of thing. But had I gone to the lecture, I wouldn't have wanted to see them shouted down. But the left-wing thinkers won't even let them speak. Worse, the fear that that's going to produce some kind of conflict means that the university authorities then cancel the talk yep. because they don't want to have a fight on their premises. So effectively, it's censorship. It's effectively saying, if we don't like what we think you're going to say, we're going to find a way of stopping you saying it. And that's happening in universities, and I think it is appalling. Yep. Um, the other thing that we're getting in our universities is um, a readiness to take the dollar and betray the principle. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm one of the founders in Australia of a, of a group called uh, Friends of Science in Medicine. And we started this 
what, six years ago, I guess, because we were so appalled at the flooding on the internet of these really bodgy pseudo-health treatments. A lot of them are alternative, a lot of them are self-invented, a lot of it is sort of hype about taking vitamins, it's medicines that don't work, it's just, just a great flood of it. And we formed this group to say, we're going to argue for evidence-based medicine. You know, you can't just get up and say, take this. It's back in the, you know, it's the, the, it's the sort of Western salesman, you know, the, the patent medicine salesman. It's, it's coming back again. But unfortunately, some of our universities being offered a million dollars to set up an institute of dot, dot, dot will take the money and suddenly there's a sort of alternative medicine, alternative health practice, bang in the middle of a university called a health science. Now, by definition, it's not. It's never been tested. There's no evidence. When you do test it, it doesn't work. But there's a quid following it. And because that's then in the university, the people who are behind this can say, well, we must be valid because we're in a university. So the whole thing is a circular way of betraying principle for money. And a third of our universities and our running courses that are not evidence-based, or in fact are discredited because there's money behind it and they're calling them health sciences. And it's appalling. It's appalling. And then even how- Sorry, we're now getting political influence. For example, with traditional Chinese medicine, um, that's finding its way in too, because the Chinese are, are so determined, I think, to intrude. I don't know if you're getting the same thing in Europe, but it's happening in the Pacific the very deliberate push of the Chinese government to sort of get Chinese influence economically and culturally everywhere. And some of it is wonderful. We have lovely things like the Asia Festival, which is an arts festival. But they're also paying to put Chinese medicine institutes into universities and call them valid science. Well, let them be explored and weed out the stuff that isn't, and there's an awful lot that isn't, and retain the stuff that is, but that's not happening. It's all just embraced and accepted because it's uh, traditional. It must be all right. No. Well, traditionally, the earth is flat, is uh, round or flat or, you know, whatever. It traditionally is not really the best scientific um, validation of something. So what would you like to see in terms of the universities um, acting against these, these commercial interests and influences? Well... First of all, if you're going to call it science, let it abide by what we know science means and embraces. Mm. That which, for which you can form a hypothesis that can be tested, test it by valid means, and discard it if it doesn't meet. But you can't form a valid hypothesis if you've got some bodgy health thing which depends upon a mystical energy mm. that no one can define or actually detect, we're pretty good at detecting energy. We can still detect faint traces of Voyager, mm. and that tiny little thing has left the solar system. We can detect energy there, but you can't detect the energy of these things which mystically are controlling your health because of your feet or your iris or you know, you hold your hands over somebody's body and mystical energy will rush about or nah. crystals that have mystical energy that so oh, it's all rubbish. Now, if you call that science, you're just betraying your 
concept of what science is and does. It gets, Call it, if you like, a faith-based health system, but not a science one. Yeah. It gets even worse when you combine those two things. That that's almost censorship, where you can't even criticize these things. But yep. Then you're, if you criticize them, then you're the hate speaking. Uh, that you're, yeah, yep. uh, you're doing hate speech, and then then that's that's a bad circle, and that's what's happening. At yeah, all. yeah, that's right. It's happening everywhere. There's also, I, I think, um, I worry about this. It's it's what I call the loss of the village well effect, and it works like this: uh, the loss of the village well effect. You know, in the village well, mm -hmm. in an old village, yeah. people would go to the well and they'd swap stories, like the the water cooler. Yeah, yeah okay, I got you. Yeah. Sort of meeting place where people would swap rumors and stories and gossip and, and things. But it was a you'd share a common experience of what you understood was happening. Now, when I when I was in university doing my doctorate, um, typically most people would sort of knock off for a while and have a cup of tea around about 11. Mm -hmm. And the conversation would be things like, oh, did you see the news last night? What's happening in, oh, yes, that's terrible. Or somebody who had you know, not seen it would hear this. But by the time you'd left, you'd all had a sort of discussion about something that, more or less everybody had seen or experienced. Now you say, I do media training, and I say to these students, has anyone read a paper today? No. Anyone watched television last night? No. Where do you get your news? Oh, I get it from, and they'll name some agency. <clears throat> Then you start saying, well, what sort of news do you get? Well, I don't like politics. I, I weed that out. Mm -hmm. I don't like science. I like sport, and I like fashion, and I like, you know, uh, something else. So they feed to themselves only the news they want. And you say to somebody now, did you see the news last night? Oh, I don't watch television. Thank you. Oh, I don't read papers. I don't. There's no communal um, Exchange. experience day to day of everybody more or less knowing what's happening in Syria, knowing what's happening in Switzerland, knowing what's happening in America. They've all got bits and pieces of it and different versions of it and different prejudices of it. So to have a discussion now about these things is quite hard because you don't all have the same ability to join in on something that you're all sharing. Uh, that's what I call the loss of the village well effect. I think that's happening to our perception of news. Hence, the rise of fake news. Yeah, yeah. I don't like Trump's description of it, but there's certainly a lot of it about. That's true, yeah. And uh, what about these discussions going on on Twitter and all these new media, isn't that the, on those micro wells in a way, or is the problem that you don't have <laughs> one, one, one central one that everyone kind of yeah. comes to? That, that's part of it. You know, that you don't have the hang on a bit. That's not what we saw. That's, you, know, you don't have the input of the people who have shared an authoritative report. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of input of people who shared a discredited or unauthenticated report, or something is made up. Mm -hmm. Huge amount. I mean, it's, um, it's concerning when you're trying to get sensible citizen voting on things that really affect your country, because half of them haven't really got um, a good report of the issues surrounding what you're going to vote on. So I think democracy is suffering. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
we talked about uh, the conflict between science and and commercial funding. I mean, nowadays a lot of funds are being withdrawn from from universities, from institutions, so they have to rely on some sort of private funding. Um, mm. Way you when you restarted your your um, curiosity show on YouTube, you also had a sponsor, Kellogg's, uh, I guess. Um, no, not really. No, no um, we started the program just as on, on YouTube. We have a very good company in Adelaide called Enabled. We went to them because Dean and I technically were not quite up to doing it, mm -hmm. and they knew how to do it. So they put it up there, and uh, they we still work with them, and we say to them, look, can you put up this ad for our new DVD? And they're, they're doing that at the moment. That should be there in a couple of days. And uh, they've helped us through some of the alternative ways of you know, things like crowdfunding that we might consider and things of that kind. But we pay for that ourselves, hoping that eventually the channel might make enough money at least to pay for itself, mm -hmm. which is now, you know, the, 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 the viewers have grown in number and it's starting to get into that healthy situation. But we pay for that. Kellogg's was different. They just wanted um, Kellogg's for, uh, it's a worldwide company, isn't it? It's, it's uh, sort of uh, cereal and breakfast food. But they, they, I think, um, because they make videos and have them on their channel, uh, just came to Dean and me and said, would you make a curiosity show for us? Mm -hmm. uh, Dean will do commercials. I won't. Uh, um, he's done a couple. Uh, because I've been in the teaching field all my life, I think if you're a teacher or a journalist and you start doing commercials, then you sold your words for money. Yeah. And I think it compromises your teaching. That's just my view. But I made it clear that I was not going to endorse any products in this, and they said, that's fine. So really all we did was to make a sort of new curiosity show around the theme of, if you like, uh, cereals. Yeah. So it's, it's what I was saying before. You, you come up with cereals. What can we do here? And my segments were, for example, a one-minute curio on a side. What is this peculiar implement? Mm -hmm. um, I did a thing on... Uh, uh, I think it was the the proportions of chemicals in the in the human body. Um, Dean did one on how cornflakes are actually how you can make your own cornflakes yeah. at home. Yeah. So it was all around the topic, but I don't think we mentioned Kellogg's once. No, no. It's actually I was I was um, quite happy because when I did the research for our discussion and I saw that episode and I saw Kellogg's, I go, oh no, no, they they sold out now, so they're probably going to. Talk about Kellogg's being healthy and cereals being healthy and whatever. But I was yeah. I, I was quite quite happy that you just you know you had it there and you had a few things around the topic as you mentioned, but you you didn't push anything. So I was happy that you well, kept your. Well, we had yeah. We started it with a sort of simulated breakfast table, which did at Dean's house, and I was horrified when I looked at it back. There are these couple old sort of bearded geezers sitting there. And right in front of them is this huge box of all bran. I thought, well, this is not a good look. <laughs> <laughs> we could have picked something else. Yeah. But, no, Kellogg's were quite happy with that. They just, uh, and they, you know, we didn't have any pressure at all. In fact, there were some things that I put in that they took out when I, I was talking about some of the statistics of um, which I thought, I looked them up and they were there, but they thought might be a little um, over the top and they took it out, which surprised me a bit because it was in their favor to have it in, and it was factual. So they were very good. Hmm. We enjoyed doing that. It was fun. 
I, I read that you had some sort of um, food and health related project in the pipeline. Or nutrition related. I remember reading something a few days ago. No, I, uh, it may have been in reference to this, but that was. Uh, no, I can't think of anything else there. Oh, no, 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 not new show based around nutrition. No, I think that, that was probably the one. Oh. Yeah, that, okay. that nutrition and food and what we eat. And... Okay, maybe I got I got that wrong. Okay, okay. Um, what do you think about the state of our current education uh, system? So not only universities, um, but also primary schools. Um, what do you see challenges? What do you see the developments? Well, it, it's well recognized in Australia that we're, um, uh, we're in trouble in science and maths. We're going backwards. We used to be higher in the world's um, rating than we are now, uh, which is pretty bad for a, you know, a well-off Western country. Um, everyone wonders about why. And we keep coming up with a new curriculum and new sort of theories about education. And, and you know, you just, you just get maddened because here we go again. Um, but partly, or a lot of it, is simply we don't have in schools enough good science and maths teachers. We have some wonderful ones, and I'm in awe of them, but we don't have enough of them. And I used to train teachers, so I could see what it would happen that... that um, I mean, back 50 years ago, if you're going to train to be a teacher, you went in and you did all these stubbics and you went out and taught like that. It was very prescriptive. Um, and we got away from that for good reasons of saying, no, you'll do a sort of liberal arts education and you can choose your strengths and your interests and follow that. And then you'll go out and teach. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, everybody did some of this is you know, your basic science and your basic maths, your basic this and the other. But a huge lot of these kids would come in and they'd choose to major in drama and phys ed. Mm. Now, that's great. So we've got a huge number of people wanting to teach drama and phys ed, but they also had to teach science and maths. And they'd often dislike these subjects. They got a smattering of them with us, and a smattering is not enough. Then they go into schools where they don't have that confidence we talked about, Uh, they can learn a subject the night before and sort of deliver it like that, but you stray off that, they're lost. Mm -hmm. And science is not a matter of learning a topic and saying, here's a whole lot of facts. Science is, oh, we've made an observation, how can we test it to see if it's true? And that requires a deal of confidence in your ability to handle. So, I mean, science is not hard. Baking a cake is science. If I... If I make a cake and it comes out and it's a splodgy mess, mm -hmm. immediately I say, well, okay, what are my variables? I could have put in too much water. I may not have put enough heat. I may have put in the wrong mix. Okay, I do that in my mind. I say, well, let's make another one. So I've got my variables sorted. My hypothesis is I didn't turn the oven on. I do an experiment of making exactly that same mix again, keeping the variables constant put it in the oven, turn it on, out it comes, success, validation of hypothesis, eat cake, finished. Mm -hmm. That's a science experiment. You isolate, you make an observation, you isolate what you think of cause and effect, isolate your variables, do it, and out you come. 
Simple. That's science. Science is not, this is a tadpole. That's the product of science. But science is not fact. So the people who have no ability to take a child's observation and say, how do we test it, will say, today we're doing surface tension. Do this. Mm-hmm. And they call it an experiment, and it's a demonstration. So the kid thinks an experiment is something quite wrong. I was like this. I had no idea, even when I was doing my science degree, how science worked. I just did all this stuff. So we're having a perpetuation in in our schools of this kind of wrong thinking about science. It's often boring. So the kids at the end of it say, I don't want to do any more of this. Dean and I had a lot of people, we still do have a lot of people say, oh, your show, it did such a lot to turn children onto science. Very flattering. I don't think it's true. Every child I know likes animals and volcanoes and explosions and, and uh, you know, all that stuff, you know, dinosaurs. They love all that. They start loving science. By the end of primary, they don't. We've got to stop them being turned off science. And a lot of that is, unfortunately, the experience they have in schools. And maths is probably even worse. So you can invent all the new... Sorry, sorry about this. Um, through to you. We're talking about curriculum. You can invent the best curriculum you like, but if you put it in the hands of people who can't, haven't got within themselves the ability to stray and, and deal with observations off their own bat, there's no point in having it. And we had a, a chief scientist who just stood down recently, and he said, we must put a, a, a specialist science teacher in every, every primary school. And that would be good because if you've got a specialist teacher, they can help the non-specialist teachers deal with this, give them the confidence, give them somebody to rely on and help them do more interesting things in a more interesting way. And that would be wonderful. But we haven't got there yet. We, we keep coming up with new curricula. No, and it's interesting. Um, I've talked to a few scientists as well and some interviews, and I keep hearing the same thing. So I was... I was um, I've met a scientist, um, Dr. Robert Lustig from the U.S., who is kind of um, fighting the war against sugar. I don't know if you've heard about him. <laughs> and then he's the same, the same thing. We, we need to make sure that um, we don't lose our ability to, to do proper science because uh, yeah. that's what seems to happen. And, and we need to make sure that everyone gets instilled with the knowledge and, and the, the, the critical thinking behind that. And uh, otherwise, things like you mentioned are going to happen, like that we get institutions that are not scientific but are called science and then that trickles into society and, and um, yeah, ruins. Well, it, it, there's also now a growing anti-science feeling. Again, I think fueled a lot by the internet and there are conspiracy theorists, there are you know, the people who oppose things like genetically modified food and organisms, the people who are fearful of the genetics because, you know, they, they think it's tampering with something or other. There's a lot of anti-science feeling. I mean, climate change has polarized people in our society uh, because you're dealing with issues now that, that uh, I mean, it's odd. One of, the, one of the fights we have in this country is about population. And the economists and the politicians all want a bigger Australia. Why? 
because it will make us more productive. Growth is good. Now, you can go into a primary school and the little children can understand that you cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. You cannot, have inf you cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. Eventually, you have to stop. What happens when you stop? Well, because we're not full yet, these people are full bore on trying to make us safe mm -hmm. because they can see that more people is more consumption, is more growth, is more money. But it's also more destruction of habitat. It's more loss of wildlife. Adelaide, where I live, is, South Australia, is the extinction capital of the world for mammals. We have lost locally 32 species, Wow, 22 species, and they're not entirely gone. They might exist somewhere else, but locally they're gone. Now, I look out, the place that was all around me where I live in the hills was farmland. It's under houses. Mm. You look at Australia, all the nice arable land is around the fringe. It's under houses. It's under cities. It's under roads. So as you grow, you lose a lot as well. And... Um, and yet when you have this argument about population, if you try and introduce an ecological element to it, um, immediately you're shouted down by economists and lawyers who think that the world runs on man-made laws, and it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But our, our politics is full of lawyers and economists who think like this. And if you say to people, look, look the scientists... The climate change issue has become, unfortunately, in this country, down to do you believe it or not believe it? And you kind of down the middle. It's much more complex than that. There's some elements which I think are quite well established, others which are rather dubious. Some in the middle are probably happening, but we don't know the cause. But there's, there's a word in science called consilience. It's when you do, when from all sorts of unrelated areas, you come up with the same result. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not sort of people agreeing, it's all sorts of different things are showing you the same answer. That's consilience. And there's that in climate change. If you look at glaciers, you look at rocks, you look at animal movement, you look at all sorts of things. They're all kind of coming together and saying the same thing. Something is happening. So, but when you say to people who have already got their house and they've got their car and they want to fly overseas for a holiday every year, these things are problems. You're dealing with people who are already wedded to a lifestyle and a way of living that they don't want to lose. So you've got immediate antagonism, not because of the science of the thing, but because denial. And we're getting that more and more because science is starting to, we're starting to find the you know, the, the end of things. We're finding the, uh, the end of wilderness. We talk about wilderness. There's no wilderness anywhere, I think, that doesn't now have to be managed. You've got to take feral animals out. You've got to stop people chopping down things illegally. You know, it, 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 there is no wilderness left. Um, and we're, we're butting up against all these things which are real precious. We've now got it with oil explorers who are wanting to, because we need more oil, they're now starting to eye off deep sea drilling mm -hmm. off our coasts in areas which are whale sanctuaries. They've got the last surviving, you know, animals of various kinds, huge endemicity of species which are found nowhere else. But they want to plonk oil wells there. And the people who oppose that are saying, look at that oil spill that happened in America. You don't want that here. 
But all these pressures are starting to really touch upon the way we live. And Australia's got a real one at the moment with electricity because um, there's a huge political movement that says no more coal, we're the biggest coal exporter, no more coal, we've got to have alternative energy, and I've got solar cells on the roof, um, you know, fine, but it's intermittent. If the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing, then you don't have enough energy there to provide the base load that you need for furnaces and factories and things. So we've got ourselves now into a trap of saying we're only going to go for your renewables. It means no one's building power stations. The old ones are falling down. Mm-hmm. And energy here is one of the highest in the country, although we have masses of coal, masses of sunlight. And from times immemorial, there's a, mor- a moratorium on we will not have nuclear. Mm-hmm. So we're in deep trouble because of this. And the science and the the way people are living are really clashing. And and people are not looking at the science and saying, well, this tells us a way to go. They're saying, oh, this is the way I want to live. Oh, you can't do that. Oh. Yeah. Really, really difficult to have public conversations now. Yeah. Well, wasn't Elon Musk trying to build uh, some some battery grids in Australia? Uh, Elon Musk, he has. He, um, well, South Australia, we, we had a Labour government which uh, was all for renewables. Mm-hmm. And it actually pulled down our last power station and and so took it out of the system. And then we had a huge storm which blew down the connector where we got our electricity from uh, Victoria. And w- this house where I live was one of the worst hit. Over last year or the year before, over Christmas and New Year, we had no power for six days. Oh, wow. I went out and bought a generator. Uh-huh. So now I'm making stinky two-stroke fumes because somebody doesn't want coal. So that really, everybody holds South Australia now up as the sort of state that they don't want to copy. Um, But for fear of that happening, Elon Musk came in and said to our then Premier, he's gone now, we've had a change of government, said, I'll build you a battery Mm -hmm. and be there in 100 days or you don't have to pay for it. Tremendous publicity thing. It is there and it's working well. But if you took the power out, I think it would last for three minutes. It's great for taking, you know, for dealing with, with spikes, transients, transients, spikes and things, and they're going to be more of them. But it, it's, it's very hard to say, you know, we can do it now and get rid of coal. Okay. But that's sort of political situation we're in. And we could, we're probably going to lose our federal government over. So solar is, we're not there yet in terms of technology to support everything. So we are. We're, we're there in terms of generation, and there's a lot of solar about. And as I say, we have got it, but the battery apparatus that you need is pretty expensive. I mean, to run a country on it, you need a lot of storage power. Mm-hmm. Now it will come. There are people are looking at molten salt and molten silica and different ways of storing. We're looking at pumping water up with this solar energy. And then at night time, you can run it down again and drive turbines. We're looking at all of that, but we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. And yet the political insistence is we've got to have no more coal now. Yeah. And these, these stations are going offline and nobody is going to build new ones because the whole future of coal is so uncertain. Yeah. So we're, we're, uh, a bit, we're a bit in trouble anticipating technology too quickly on the one hand 
and fighting it on the other. Yeah, and there are practical problems to it. I remember from um, my trips to China, I've talked to a few people, and in China, you know, uh, all the all the bikes basically have been switched over to electric bikes only a few years back already. But there are still millions of cars out there polluting the environment. And um, the question was, you know, why isn't government as quick with you know, switching, you know, speaking a word of, of power and just having them all switch to um, battery-driven cars? That could solve a lot of problems from an economic perspective. But it's just, look, we simply can't do it. We have so many cars, so many people. We don't have to power. What, what are we going to do? Power the electric cars with coal? doesn't make any sense. So, so right now, I think they're building over 50 new nuclear plants to power those electric cars because there's no, no other way to do it, really. Yeah. Well, we've, we've got the same thing here. People are talking about electric as if electric cars don't have to get their power from somewhere, but you've got to charge them up on the mains, and that, at the moment, will be coal. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you can charge them during the day when the sun is shining... That's fine, but if people go home and plug them in at night, there's another drain mm. on the existing system when when the sun is not shining. So it does require, and it will get there, but it's not there yet. Mm. So uh, you know, I, I would, I would, I would myself take a bit of a halfway house on it. And I mean, we're apparently we're we've got a lot of natural gas in this country, but we're selling it overseas so cheaply that people are now talking about buying our gas overseas and bringing it back. That, that's how absurd it's got. We, really we don't have a government that said we've got to secure for this country enough supplies to serve our domestic needs. And we have really let it get away from us um, on both sides of the, the politics. Our politics here are a bit like Britain. We have a Labour Party mm. and we have a Liberal and National Party as coalition, which is a bit like the Tories in England, mm. with a whole lot of minor parties because people are so disaffected with the major parties that they've got this kind of smorgasbord of bits and pieces that's very hard to put together anything coherent. Yeah. And we're in Okay. We kind of left off um, with a discussion talking about science and how important science is. So, um, Similar question, how do you instill the, the wish or the, the, the uh, how, how do you put it in English? Um, yeah, the desire to, to play with things is one thing or to build things. How do you instill the desire to be interested in science in, in children, especially? What can we do to make that happen if our teachers are failing and we, if we don't have the support from schools? So what can each one of us, what can parents do, what can grandparents do to make sure the next generation will not be flatlining on science completely? That's a, that's a big ask, Rob. <laughs> that's a big ask. <laughs> I, I can only know what I'm doing. Um, as I say, I'm on the board of a body which goes out and takes science to children. Mm. This is SciWorld. We're online. You can look it up. SCI World. SciWorld, one word. So we, we do that, so people can get involved with organizations like that. Mm -hmm. And schools who may be a bit weak on science can hire us, and we can, we can at least momentarily bring that injection of excitement that makes a child want to continue with science. I think we can encourage, um, we can vote for 
We can vote for better education. We can vote for better science education. I mean, science in this country, unfortunately, and in our state, which is really, we're economically not in a very good state in Australia. We're one of the, they call us the mendicant state because they take our goods and services tax. There's 10% on everything. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And that, that was introduced, it's a bit like the VAT in England, and I'm sure you have the same thing. That was introduced uh, oh, decades ago. But the promise was when that came in, it would be divided up between the states mm -hmm. so that everybody in Australia would have, wherever they live, would have access to the same kind of facilities, mm -hmm. which is good. Now, what's happened is that in the mineral spoon, when Western Australia was exporting a vast amount of iron, um, they made a huge amount of money, and in the end, all the all the GST raised in that state, they were only getting 30 cents in the dollar. The rest was going to other states, quite a lot to South Australia. And some states then said, well, we won't mine coal. Brisbane, Queensland, we won't mine coal. We won't do that. So the states that were prepared to mine were generating the money, mm -hmm. and the GST of that was then being shared and going to the states who wouldn't mine. Okay. And they were getting out of it. So the miners are saying, well, this isn't fair, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, there, there are problems there about how we, we address that. Um, so in, that's a roundabout way of getting to my topic, which was that South Australia is now looking at trying to get back in the economic game. And it's sort of building submarines, and it's building ships, and it's doing this, that, and the other. All of which means that they're now saying, we've got to train more science and technology students to be our workforce. Well, that's fine. I agree with that. But we need to give more people science and technology and maths, not to be scientists and technologists and mathematicians, but to be sensible citizens who can understand and evaluate the arguments of climate change and genetically modified food and coal and nuclear. And that's as important as anything, to have a, a, a set of civilians who can say, well, this makes sense. Not a set of civilians to say, no, the earth is flat, we won't have it. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to encourage that too, not just for making research scientists, but to making people who put science back in the spectrum of things they care about and understand and can talk about sensibly the way they can about films and art and music and all that. Okay. So that's another one, and I think people who've got grandchildren and children, it's essential to do things with them so they get the joy of making and doing and manipulating and building and, and control of these things. So there would be a, a few things. What, what, what are other skills important for, especially children, to learn? I mean, critical thinking is one thing, but what are other skills needed today? Do kids all need to, to program do kids all need to? Uh, I think, yeah, that, that's, that's certainly, uh, that, that's great. I mean, learning programming, one, one of the things we have in, in our sci world, and a lot of people have it too, and there's those beautiful robotics kits where you learn to make a robot do what you want mm -hmm. by sort of clicking tiles together. And they're conceptual tiles. You know, this one, go forward, and then you say how far, and then go left and pick up and put down. So you can't tell a robot, go to the door and open it. You've got to work out how a robot goes. Yeah, yeah. And these, these work very well with primary children. You can see the concepts there of how you do it. Well, I think programming's the same. Writing code is the same. 
of these programs for them. And I want my five-year-old granddaughter to get into that. Uh, at the moment, it's pink princesses, but we'll, uh, we'll get it. <laughs> uh, but, of course, increasingly you find grandparents and parents are so unable themselves to handle that that they are not, uh, uh, in difficulties trying to get children to do it. Mm-hmm. Again, it's divide. Children now, we found in schools, the kids were coming in more capable in IT than the teachers who are supposed to be teaching them. You know, it's it's quite hard to keep up with this stuff. So we need to find ways of making sure that those children themselves then don't drop out because they don't get exposure. Yeah. Um, want to be a kind of um, increasing disparity between um, families that might not have the funds to you know have computers in the home and have yeah. devices in the home and families that are more well off where those kids grow up with that and we're gonna kind of split society into two parts with, uh, in a way, digital natives and the ones who are excluded from all this because, you know, simply it's not possible for them. I think it's already happened. In this country, it's particularly happened with that and a number of things for the Aboriginal community. Mm. Now, if you go into the Aboriginal schools in the, in the top end, we call it the top end, the north of Australia, Australia's pretty big. It goes from the tropics to almost sub-Antarctic, so... You know, up there, um, there are a lot of Aboriginal schools there. And in, uh, forget the figures, I saw them the other day, but in a huge number of them, if you go in, you'll only find teachers who are just out of training. Mm-hmm. You don't have continuity of teachers. You know, the teachers come, they go. There's no kind of consistent mm-hmm. pattern of building up these things that these children need. So in the schools, particularly private schools where people are prepared to pay, you'll have well-established programs, you'll have teachers there from year to year who see these things through, they've got good equipment, they're right on to things like programming and writing code, so those children are getting a, a head start well before they leave school. In other schools, they haven't got the equipment, the, the teachers are transient, uh, they may not know enough themselves, you know, hopeless. So yes, that's that's a big problem, and it's not just the equipment. Having your own computer at home, it's having access to somebody who can show you how to use it properly, mm-hmm. rather than just get on it yourself and find pornography or or horrendous thing. So yes, a big a big divide, a big divide, and we're not on top of it because we don't have enough people, even in our good schools, to uh, get ahead of this. We need the specialists everywhere to help to be the sort of nucleus around which the other teachers who are willing and able can actually get the, the expertise they need. It's really important. Um, as a scientist, what concerns do you have uh, about the state of this planet or of the state of our society as a whole? Well, I think increasingly divisiveness. Um, personally, being a zoologist, my life has been in conservation and, and that's, uh, that's a steadily losing game. I was president of our two zoos here for six years, and um, you know you could see it. You could see it all the time. Whatever you were doing, what it, we contributed to a lot of international programs, and um, you know it's a constantly losing game. That um, I mean, I, for, I forget how many years ago it was, but we reached a point where there are now more more people living in cities mm-hmm. than there are. In, in the countryside. Mm-hmm. So the world is increasingly urbanized 
and that's incompatible with a lot of natural natural life. So that's a huge concern to me, um, and I don't see. Uh, I think the the two things that will save whatever we can a wildlife. One will be zoos, and a lot of people don't like zoos. And I understand it, but they're probably thinking of menageries, which to me are those kind of Victorian horrors of, of concrete and steel where you just collected animals and had as many species as you could. The more you had, the better you were. They were ghastly. Um, and the sciences that controlled them were really anatomy and taxonomy, classification. The modern zoo... Um, is really, I think, run by three sciences that were all new, genetics, animal behavior, and ecology. So if you look at a modern zoo, and, and I'm very proud that in my presidency, we tore down the old lion and tiger cages and put up a wonderful new complex for orangutans and tigers. Not together, but it was a, a combined thing. But you've got animal behavior where you design the exhibit so the animal isn't just corralled there on concrete it can exhibit its normal behaviors and it's encouraged to. You've got ecology, so you might put animals in together that won't hurt each other. You have tapirs and langers together. You, you, um, you, know, you, you have the plants of that country in with South American or Asian animals. So you're recreating a kind of ecology that works. And the genetics mean that if you're going to breed your rare and threatened species, you don't just bang Fred with murmur. You find that the least related, we did this with a tiger. We had a female tiger we wanted to breed. The least related tiger was in Berlin. Oh, okay. There's a stud book we keep of animals all around the world. Uh -huh. So we had to pay to get that tiger brought out to our zoo to see if he would mate with her. And they hated each other. They didn't. <laughs> But you couldn't just grab any old tiger, and they might have worked, but you wouldn't then have the genetics that were the least uh, related going. And that's enormously expensive, but zoos are doing that, keeping the last of these species as viable as they can, and sometimes reintroducing them. That's pretty hard, because if the habitat's gone to make them endangered in the first place, you can't put them back into it, they're gone. Yeah. But uh, it's worked with a few. We, we had at one stage in Monato more Zhivalski's wild Mongolian horses than there were left in the wild. In Mongolia. When saving. I think it was down to 22. We had more there. Okay. And they've gone back. Some of them have gone back. And they're now protected in reserves. So that works. The other thing which is absolutely crucial is ecotourism. And... You saw it with the great apes. Now, the great apes yeah, were steadily being lost as villagers, subsistence villagers would cut down the jungle, plant a crop or two, very poor soil, chop down more jungle, kill the, you know, gorillas there. They really had no choice if they're going to survive. Now, they preserve the jungle and they preserve the gorillas because people like me will pay thousands of dollars to spend a few days being taken up to look at them. Okay. And my wife and I have done that in Borneo with the orangutans. We, we just went on a trip, thousands of dollars each. We can afford it. We wanted to. You go in and your money helps pay for more jungle to be set aside. It helps pay for the people who are saving them. It helps pay for the rehabilitation of those that are brought in, that are, mothers have been killed. 
So ecotourism means that these villagers now can make more money on a sustainable way out of saving wildlife that people want to see than they could make transiently out of destroying it for just another year's crops. Okay. And so ecotourism, I think, will be the only way that we save a lot of the world's wildlife as long as people are interested in seeing it. And they, they are. It's a natural wish. Uh, and if we don't destroy the thing we love with overpressure, I think that's that's going to be that's going to be effective. Yeah. But it'll only be pockets. A bit of a provocative question, but why is it important to save whatever species, for example, specific species? Because there, are, over the you know, last hundreds of millions of years, you know, there were so many species that have naturally faded away. So why is it important to keep that gorilla, or keep that Mongolian horse, or um, why do you think is it important to, to preserve them? I, I did a broadcast on this. I, I wondered about it myself. But um, I, think, I think there are a number of reasons. Uh, the first is, well, aesthetic. Uh, and these things, you look at art, it's full of animals and plants. Uh, you know, they're just lovely things. And if you lose them, you lose that. Um, there's... There's the obvious one, ethically. I mean, we shouldn't destroy what we can save. We're a dominant species. It doesn't give us a kind of right mm. to write, write off everything else. So there's that, and humanitarian. They're, they're good reasons. But there's also, there are also utilitarian reasons. For example, um, we're now running out of antibiotics that work. Mm. Okay, we're in real trouble with... with because yeah, yeah. we overuse them, we've got bacteria that are now immune, and we can't knock them off with anything. But it would appear that if you can get the right bees and the right plants, that there are some honeys that are effective. Um, now, are, I, I don't know how well they've been tested. Some of them have been tested. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's a honey that New Zealanders use, and we do. Come some. Uh, from um, Melaleuca trees, but it's a particular kind of honey which, if you unpasture, if it's unpasteurized, will apparently help lesions on the leg that nothing else is tackling. So um, there are, if you look at frogs, they live in in putrid swamps, but they don't get infections and die. What have they got in their skin that protects them from bacteria? that might protect us from bacteria. But at the moment, chytrid fungus is sweeping the world and wiping out God knows how many species of frogs, and some we haven't even classified, and they're gone. Okay. Um, we've got clams on the Great Barrier Reef. They sit under this blazing sun, and they don't get sunburned. Corals, too. What have they got in their tissue that protects them from the we are going to need? So there are utilitarian reasons, there are aesthetic reasons, there are, you talk about the rate at which we're losing species, and we always have. We haven't lost them at this rate. Okay. They are, normally, when something goes, there is time for it to be replaced or for it to change. Mm -hmm. But when that happens over a century or 50 years, there is no time. Yeah. So the rate of change is one thing. We've had five great extinctions in this world We're going through one now. And the others were meteors and, and things of that kind. The meteorite strike that took out the, the, uh, the um, dinosaurs. There have been others that took out huge numbers of species. We're doing one now, and it's entirely human-caused. And it's taking out the same number of species. Okay. 
So it's pretty, it's pretty worrying. Um, you know, I think I think there are a lot of lot of reasons when you look at it. Um, you know, once they're gone, they're gone. Mm-hmm. And although people talk about putting the genetics of something together, they're talking about that with the thylacine, the so-called you know Tasmanian tiger or wolf. Um, it's the thylacine, uh, and it was almost in living memory it was alive. But the last died in nineteen. 19- 36, I think, in, ta- in Tasmanian Zoo. Yeah, I've seen some black and white pictures of that. Yeah, and there's another reason. You see, that was behavioral. Um, when, you look at, uh, when you look at mammals, the intelligent mammals are among the carnivores and the primates. The primates like the monkeys and the apes, and the carnivores like wolves and dogs. Now, this was a very wolf-like animal. It would have been the largest predatory marsupial we have no idea now of its behavioral or intelligence capabilities. And that would tell us quite a lot about, about the brain because the marsupial brain is rather different from ours. How much intelligence would such an animal have had? It would have been the most intelligent of all, but we'll never know. Okay. So that's a loss. Mm-hmm. A lot of reasons. Okay, I see. I see. So looking over your left shoulder, you have a little boat up there. <laughs> ah. Yeah, uh, I'll just I'll spin the camera a little. I don't know if you can see it. That's the Endeavour. That's Captain Cook's Endeavour. And Captain Cook was a sort of hero of Australia, a magnificent navigator. And he, he came out on several voyages, but the 1770 one was a biggie, where in that little ship he came out and he, uh, he charted a whole lot of the coast of eastern Australia. People say he discovered Australia. It's not true. But he charted a lot of it and New Zealand and uh, down in the Antarctic regions, in this little coal carrier that was a sort of leaky old tub. And um, eventually it was sold, I think it became called the Earl of Sandwich. Um, and people lost track of it, but it went to America and eventually was scuttled in the American War of Independence to stop the French getting in, I think, to Boston. Yeah. And they, they lined up a whole lot of ships that were on their last you know, last legs, if that's not a mixed metaphor. And they sunk them as a barricade. And it's one of them. Okay. And they they think now they've found it. They've they've known it was there, one of five. They seem now to have narrowed it down to one of two. It's today's news. Ah, okay. And, and now they've got to do the test to see which one it is, which is tricky because there are a lot of ships about the same size and the records are not as good as they might be. But um, we might have got it. I've got it. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, but you're quite fond of ships in general, so... I'm oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, bottle, uh, bottle boats? Yeah, I, I, I do, but there's some online of how to put a ship in a bottle. But I, um, I've done a few of them, including that one. Oh, okay. But uh, I did it, I started it because I, being a scuba diver, I was with a group that did underwater archaeology. We worked on shipwrecks. And you find a wreck, and it's very hard to know what's what. A great blob encrusted with weeds and scallops and heaven knows what, and bits lying everywhere. You think, what is this? Where does it go? And I thought I need to learn a bit more about the rigging of ships. Mm-hmm. And making small models of them seemed a good way. And what do you do with them? I thought, well, I'll put them in a bottle. That's the sort of thing I can get rid of. And uh, so I, I learned a bit about the rigging of ships by building them and different sorts of riggings, which was useful for the maritime archaeology. Okay, very interesting. 
<laughs> right, Rob. So we went on for quite a while now, and uh, we did quite it. I don't want to keep it, although I enjoyed it very much, don't want to keep it too long. Um, I have uh, two last questions that I always ask people. And um, the first question is, um, this is a series of interviews with exceptional people. So except people that um, do something to bring this world one step further in terms of science or through experiences or um, through their way of thinking or uh, no, through whatever makes them special. And... Um, You're certainly one of those people in the fields of uh, science, and you did a lot to to um, inspire a generation of of um, kids 20, 30 years ago, and now again through YouTube channels, and hopefully that will grow even more. Um, if you would think of um, one such person that um, I should interview next, who would that be? If you could get him for me, uh, I would I would go for David Attenborough. So David Attenborough. Uh, who, in my opinion, has done more than anyone or anything to keep alive in the world a fascination with the natural world. Uh, I've, met, I've met him, I, I look after him for a few days, a lovely bloke, um, very busy, but also a fantastic conversationalist. If you get him, I think you'd have a real scoop. Okay. Um, and... Uh, He's as interesting as you'd expect. He, he would be, he wouldn't. And I suppose one I would, we tried to get here, we wanted to get here for a program we had, and I suggested him, but he won the Nobel Prize, so it became immediately a bit less accessible, and that's the bloke who started the, the microbank, you know, that where impoverished, particularly women, could borrow $50, $100, buy a sewing machine, start making money, pay it back. A huge social movement in the world, and Yanis, I think his name is, and I've, I've just gone from my mind, but he would be one. But Attenborough would be my first pick. All right, so I'll do my best to get through to him. <laughs> and so the last question, and um, I want to close with that, is um, what's your what's the message that's close to your heart? So what's the final message that you um, want to bring out to everyone who's watching this um, conversation? Oh, Rob, it's, uh, it, that's, that's, that's a good question, but a really hard one. I suppose there are two. Um, the, the, one of them would be just what I've been talking about, the need to preserve the natural world and to decrease our isolation from it. We are a species. We have evolved. We evolved in an environment that no longer exists, And we are trying to still take what evolved in us and some of its behavioral and make it work in these increasingly unlikely situations. I'm sure, I mean, I'm digressing again, but if you look at sort of the politics of clubs and societies, mm -hmm. most people, no matter if they live in a city of millions, have the same number of associates. Mm -hmm. And it's probably about the same number of associates you had in the original tribe. It's about, about you know, 200 or so, yeah, yeah. only too close. And if you look at what we've done in society, how often you find that replicated. It might be my local pistol club, or it might be the flower growers society, or you know, these are little kind of, they're not any longer physically a village, mm -hmm. but they're the human associations, which are of those dimensions. And within them, you have their power struggles about who's going to be president, etc. So we've still got that inside us. We had really important drives 
of fear and rage and anger and lust and, um, you know, uh, dangerous things, which all had a point when you're living out there in a group trying to survive with real dangers around you. Put them in a city, they become things that, that they're counterproductive, but we've still got them. Mm-hmm. So we need, we need to find a way of connecting us all the time to the natural world that we were originally evolved to fit into and preserving what we can of that and seeing our place in it and not as a destructive and dominant one. That would be, I think, the first, uh, the natural world one. And the second would be to try to understand that science, when it's well applied, is unquestionably the most effective method we have of sorting out what's true and what's not true, at least in the natural world. It doesn't apply to metaphysics and religion. But when you're trying to work out what medicines will work or whether it's climate change or whether nuclear radiation is going to be dangerous or beneficial, when you actually look at the science when it's well done, it's the most effective method we have ever developed of saying this is true, this is not true, or this needs more testing. And we need to encourage an understanding of that so we're not swamped by all this kind of nonsense that's coming from people who just are sages or gurus or identities, the identity politics. Mm -hmm. To believe an identity um, or a personality is now much more powerful for people than believing somebody who for 50 years has studied it intimately. You know, I'm famous, therefore what I say goes, believe it. Very wrong. So that'd be two I'd I'd like to see strengthened in the world today. Very much. So, Dr. Morrison, thank you very much. Um, where can people learn more about Curiosity Show and how can they uh, see the videos? Well, uh, that's kind of you, Rob. The, the quickest way is probably www.youtube.com slash Curiosity Show, one word. Mm-hmm. That will get you straight to uh, more than a thousand videos with playlists. You can watch whatever you want there. And we do have a channel where, of course, we advertise our our DVDs and things like that. But for the YouTube videos, that's probably the quickest. Well, probably if you just put the Curiosity Show into Google or something, it'll come up. But there are quite a few Curiosity Shows I see now springing up around the world. But we're the real one. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, no, Thank you, Rob. It's kind of you. appreciate the conversation. And, um, well, looking forward to talking to you again. Indeed. Love to do so. Bye. Thanks. Goodbye. Thank you for watching and in a few seconds you'll hear about the extraordinary person that I'm going to talk to in my next conversation. But before that, I need to ask you for your help. See, finding people who inspire and motivate you to make a change, that's what's most important to me. But to connect you with these amazing people and to bring you conversations that you will not find anywhere else, I need you to become a part of our journey. So please get involved and leave a comment below with your own questions and maybe even tell me who I should talk to next. And if you know anyone who might like this conversation, then please share it because I'm sure that they will like it too and it will help to grow this channel and to make an impact together. And by the way, on my website you will find all current and upcoming episodes including show notes and transcripts, background info, books and websites of my guests, podcast links and much more. And once you become an email subscriber, there is always some exclusive content, so don't forget to sign up and I'll see you in the next conversation. In the next episode, Rob talks to Aaron Stark.
At the age of 16, after years of physical and emotional abuse in a broken home, bullying at school, and isolation, Aaron reached his breaking point. He decided to buy a gun and do the unspeakable, take revenge on a world that seemingly had forgotten him. But with moments to spare, he was saved by a simple act of kindness that showed him that there is hope even in the darkest of moments. Rob and Aaron talk about bullying, what goes on in the mind of someone who is willing to take his life and those of others along with him, what we can do to prevent school shootings in the future, and much more. Join the conversation now.